Welcome to the Kings Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar-Johnson, Editor-in-Chief of No Ceilings NBA and Staff Writer for No Ceilings NBA. And I'm not flying solo this week. I am back with my co-host, Ray LeBeau, founder and curator of the Basketball Intelligence newsletter available at basketballintelligence.net. Hello there, Ray. Hi, Nick. I um, want to start off by thanking you for covering for me um, and thanking our audience for uh, putting up with me being absent <laughs> and uh, giving something of an explanation as to what's going on with me. I am going to be somewhat impaired today. Um, I did have surgery a week ago today. And uh, while things are going reasonably well in the recuperative period, it's not linear. Um, and doing the best I can, not going to be a full participant today. And uh, as to the quality of my participation, well, I'll let everybody else be the judge of that. I'm sure that will be impaired as well, but I will certainly do the best I can. And we're in really great hands as we were in your solo effort last week with you at the helm. Well, I'm certainly glad that you're here joining me and it's great to see your smiling face this morning. And of course, you know, we... We will do we will do our best to bring you the best Kings coverage that we can and hopefully Ray you will be uh, even more back next week than you are this week and I will obviously be looking forward to that and hoping for the best as you go through the recovery process obviously as you said it's not linear you know these these sorts of things don't always work out the way you want them to but so far so good and again hopefully next week we will get an even more on top of it version of Ray but for this week, we got to start with the first game of this week. And <laughs> the last time the Kings had a god-awful game, we sort of touched on it lightly and moved on, which was actually the last time the Kings had a two-game set against the same opponent. But I do want to spend a little bit more time on this terrible Kings loss than the previous terrible Kings loss. So 129 New Orleans Pelicans, 93 Sacramento Kings. And this was an interesting game at the start just because the Kings actually won the first quarter 31 to 29. But I talked last week on the solo episode about how the Dallas Mavericks were clearly flagging in the second game of the back to back. You know, they played really great basketball for the first two and a half quarters and things kind of spiraled for them from there. On the Kings side of things, it was a bit similar in that, you know, Again, they did win the first quarter. Things started out pretty well. And then in the second quarter, Zion Williamson just absolutely took him to task. He had, I believe, 18 points just in that second quarter alone. And from that point forward, it was rough sledding for the Kings. I mean, the Pelicans had a 15-point lead in that second quarter, 37-22. to 22. Third quarter was even worse. New Orleans scored 34. Kings scored just 16 really terrible offensive night for the Kings. And I think, you know, one of the key players to mention in that is Dyson Daniels, who held Deer and Fox to by far his worst effort of the season, 14 points on 18 shots for Fox, two of 12 from the three-point line. And honestly, the 12 in the three-pointer column is more telling for me than the two in that Darren Fox was forced to take the majority of his shots from the perimeter because Dyson Daniels was just keeping him from getting inside. And, you know, it's something that we've talked about before with this Kings team when if they can't get downhill pressure, they really, really struggle to score. And this game, I mean, both De'Aaron Fox and Malik Monk were essentially forced out onto the perimeter. I mean, Malik Monk as well took the majority of his shots from three-point range. And 
you know, it's pretty fitting that in a game where the Kings could not get into the paint, they had their worst offensive effort of the season. You know, I have three observations um, regarding that set. So maybe I'll hold them until after you talk about the next game. Yeah, I mean, we definitely will sort of get into the details of this set. I mean, it's interesting to me that the four worst games, arguably, that the Kings have played this season have been in their two two-game away sets, you know, first against the Rockets, which we talked about previously, and then this one against the Pelicans. But for this game, it was the kind of thing where, you know, again, there were some games with De'Aaron Fox out where the Kings struggled to score, but they sort of made up for it by, you know, better defensive efforts. I think that game against the Oklahoma City Thunder was particularly telling where, you know, 105-98, not the Kings' best offensive effort, but they did manage to, you know, relatively limit their opponents offensively and sort of eke out a win that way. But this sort of game was one where the Kings, you know, tried to get into their style and were successful in that first quarter of sort of dictating the pace of that game. And then, you know, as things went along, that second quarter, Zion Williamson started getting hot and the Kings started to go cold offensively. And I mean, after that first quarter, the Kings scored 62 points, which is just not going to be enough to take a game in pretty much any context, but specifically a context where they weren't limiting the Pelicans at all offensively. And, you know, they've had some games where they've been good enough defensively to make up for a bad offensive night. This was not one of those performances. But the second game of that two-game set against the Pelicans was certainly more encouraging for the Kings. I mean, mostly because they were in that game after the first quarter in a way that they really weren't in that 129-93 loss. But ultimately, the Kings' fourth quarter was not enough for them in the second set against the Pelicans, so they ended up dropping that game 117-112. to And this was an interesting game in my mind, just purely on the basis of what we saw from De'Aaron Fox. I mean, his previous outing against the Pelicans was his worst game of the season, pretty much indisputably. This game, he was a lot better through the first three quarters than he had been in that first outing, but he struggled in that fourth quarter. And, you know, the Kings mounted a run at the start of that quarter that ended up falling short. And, you know, a lot of the reason behind that was that the Kings expected, you know, clutch player of the year award winner, you know, incredible fourth quarter scorer De'Aaron Fox to come through and sort of help carry the team over the finish line when they really needed it. And, you know, everybody has a bad game every once in a while, but for the Kings, it's a lot more of an uphill climb than it is for some teams if De'Aaron Fox is not playing at his best. So I have a, a, a series of observations. Um, the, the first one is um, people should keep perspective. Um, mm-hmm. When you play the Pels with Zion and Ingram, it's not like typically playing the Pels because they never play together. And in these games, they did. And they're a different team, obviously. I mean, think about Fox and Sabonis, right? I mean, it's like, that's what we're talking about here. So keep perspective. It's not to say that they played as well as they could have or anywhere near it or anything like that. But it is saying, don't judge it by a normal matchup against the Pels. This is against Almost the real Pels. No McCollum, but still almost the real Pels. Um, second thing is the centrality of Fox, the point that you've been making. Um, he is at least as central to the success of that, to, of the team as maybe any player in the league is, maybe possible exception of the Joker. I don't know. Giannis, <laughs> perhaps, um, to their team. I'm not saying 
he's in a class with him, he's the same kind of player or anything like that. I'm just saying the significance of the centrality to the team is you could argue almost almost up there with just about any any other team in the league um, with the best player on um, another team in the league. I guess a, another thing I would point out, it strikes me, and I'd like to get your take on this, and I have one more after this, that a lot of the King's success or lack of it in games is really, for lack of a better term, will in position. Um, they, the Kings are so dependent, appropriately so, on their style of play. If they can impose that style on the game, very, very likely they're going to win. If, however, they're playing a team of quality that wants to impose a totally different pace and structure on the game and they succeed in doing that, um, there's a real, a decent chance they're going to lose the game. Um, this is not, uh, deep analysis, I understand, but hey, everybody's giving me an allowance today. So, <laughs> but it strikes me that, uh, that is hugely important for the Kings. Uh, will, will in position is my shorthand, uh, for him. Who wins the will in position game? Yeah, no, I agree. And I think it was very clear to see in that first Pelicans game, you know, even more so than the second one, because Dyson Daniels just so thoroughly bottled up De'Aaron Fox at the point of attack. And, you know, when he came off the bench, Malik Monk wasn't quite, you know, at the top of his game either in that one. And ultimately, I mean, the Kings really, you know, struggled to get anything going offensively after that first quarter. And it looked an awful lot at times like, you know, some of the bad games that the Kings had with De'Aaron Fox out, like particularly the blowout loss to Houston where, you know, again, it was basically just if Malik Monk can't get downhill and into the paint and, you know, he doesn't do that at anywhere near as high a level of De'Aaron Fox, which is, you know, a bit asinine to say, but worth pointing out anyway, right? It's like if Malik Monk can't get to the basket and De'Aaron Fox is out of the game or just, you know, as simple as it was in his first Pelicans game where both of them were healthy, but neither of them could get downhill, the rest of the offense just clogs up and it gets to the point where, the Kings have to rely on three-pointers even more heavily than they would otherwise. I mean, they took 45 triples in that first game against the Pelicans. They hit 11 of them, right? So it's like, they probably wouldn't have won that game if they'd hit a few more of those threes. But I think the number of attempts is more telling than everything else that they took the majority of their shots from three-point range in that game because they just couldn't get into the paint. So that raises or sets the stage for me to raise my other point, And you've alluded to it so far. But this is a wow factor for me. So Herb Jones, who is arguably the best defender and most versatile defender in the league, and Dyson Daniels as a one-two defensive combination. I don't mean one-two in terms of positions. <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> no um, that's a wow factor to me. I don't even know. I mean, I realize that's not a useful analytical description, but for the moment, words escape me. Um, Talk a little bit, if you can, about um, having a combination on defense of Herb Jones and Dyson Daniels. I mean, they're two of the best on-ball defenders in the league. And, you know, Herb Jones in particular is one of the best switch defenders in basketball, if not, you know, as you said, up there among the best. And ultimately, you know, I think having that duo is huge for this. It would be huge for any squad, but particularly for this Pelican squad where Brandon Ingram struggles with beefier guys defensively and Zion Williamson struggles with, you know, a lot of a lot of sort of quicker forwards and, you know, his defensive effort isn't 
on the same par as his offensive effort usually is. You know, this is a team that, if not for Dyson Daniels and Herb Jones, I struggle to think of how they could cobble together a good defense. But instead, I mean, Dyson Daniels just, again, you know, hounded Deer and Fox into two pretty bad games, one atrocious game, one, you know, his worst game of the season. And, you know, with that duo, essentially, you know, they were able to take Fox and Sabonis out of the game, you know, particularly in the first game more than the second game. But you know, ultimately, when you have a one-two punch like that, where you have one exceptional point of attack defender and one guy who's among the best switch guys in the league, you know, the Kings really thrive on excellent two-man gameplay, on excellent synergy between Demonis Sabonis and Keegan Murray, Demonis Sabonis and Kevin Herter, the Fox Sabonis pick and roll, which, you know, Maybe they don't run as much as some other teams might, but certainly is a huge weapon for the Kings. When you have a ridiculous point of attack defender with size, like 6'8 Dyson Daniels, and a ridiculous switch defender who can cover one through five better than arguably anyone in basketball in Herb Jones, any sort of two-man game is you know much easier to shut down than it would be for any other team. And for a King squad that relies so much on those DHOs with Sabonis at the top of the key and you know relies so much on you know Fox pick and rolls the pelicans are almost as well suited as anyone to cover you know any team with two star players but the king's two stars players in particular and it showed you know more in that first game than the second game but even so it showed in the fact that the kings were not able to get where they wanted on offense were not able to dictate the flow of the game as you mentioned well said and i would say it's going to show against virtually any opponent when you have two defenders of uh, that stature and that ability and as you say particularly needed in terms of the fit with the rest of the team. So one other thing to mention on this second Pelicans game before we move on to the Friday game against Minnesota, Trey Lyles played his first game of the season in this second game against the Pelicans. And it's been interesting just in the sense that, you know, there was sort of the backup center debate for a little bit where JaVale McGee was pushed to the edge of the rotation and Alex Len played for a bit before his high ankle sprain, which led to JaVale sort of re-entering the lineup. And he's struggled. JaVale has the last few weeks. It's not been anywhere near as good as it was the first couple games of the season for him. And with Trey Lyles, the Kings have so much more big man flexibility than they did before. I mean, you know, the small ball center lineups that the Kings ran with Trey Lyles last season, you know, those were some of the best defensive lineups the Kings rolled out last year. And Trey Lyles, you know, he's not Demonis Sabonis. No one is. But, you know, Trey Lyles is a lot better at, you know, having the offense flow through him occasionally than JaVale and certainly a lot better in that regard than Alex Len. You know, Trey, again, still coming back for them at, from that injury, but him playing 28 minutes off the bench, you know, 12 points, eight rebounds, wasn't his best effort. You know, he was pretty foul happy in that game, but it is really great for the Kings to have him back, period. But especially imperative for him to be a contributor to the lineup with Len, you know, scheduled to miss the next six to eight weeks. Trey adds a lot in a lot of different ways, and he was really missed. Let's now move to the best game of the week for the Kings, which is, you know, not that high of a bar when you lose the previous two games. But this game was, for many reasons, the most important game of the week for the Kings. And they proved up to it. I mean, you know, they were playing you know, still as of right now, when we're recording on Monday morning, the number one team in the Western Conference in the Minnesota Timberwolves. But 
Also, this was the Kings and Timberwolves third in-season tournament games. And both teams headed into this matchup 2-0 and in the in-season tournament games. And ultimately, the Kings taking this game 124 to 111 made their in-season tournament run a lot easier. It certainly simplified a lot of things in terms of the situation for the week ahead, which we'll definitely get into in a moment. But just to stick with this game for a moment, I mean... They were playing, you know, one of the best defenses in the league with Anthony Edwards continuing to come into his own as one of the young stars in the league with Carl Anthony Towns having a massive season, you know, for him so far, especially given how many trade rumors have been swirling around Carl Anthony Towns the last three years or so. This has been a very important year for him to be as good as he has. And Rudy Gobert seems a lot more comfortable in this Minnesota lineup that he did last season. It seems like he's moving a lot better. It seems like he's much more comfortable with the defensive system. And, you know, last week, you know, we were talking about Victor Wembanyama. It's the kind of situation where, you know, people tend to forget that Rudy Gobert was the guy who everybody, you know, pulled the ball out and was afraid to challenge at the rim. You know, people tend to associate that more with the shiny new toy of Wembenyama just because he's three inches taller and even scarier somehow in the paint. But people forget, or people is strong, but, you know, some people certainly have forgotten how impactful Rudy Gobert can be when he's at his best. And he has been at his best this season. But for the King side of things, I mean... Demonis Sabonis had a bit of a down game, which is understandable, again, when Rudy Gobert is covering you most of the night. And De'Aaron Fox had to take over in this one, and he took 32 shots, you know, scored 36 points, granted, but took 36 shot, uh, 32 shots, rather, because so much of the offensive emphasis was on him. But, you know, also this was sort of similar to that first Pelicans game, but in a reverse of it, in that despite the fact that the Timberwolves have Rudy Gobert and Carl Anthony Towns down low and one of the best defenses in basketball and a particularly great at-rim defense, the Kings were able to challenge them. And, you know, I think part of that, honestly, goes back to the Dyson Daniels discussion, right? You know, Mike Conley has been one of the premier point guard defenders in the league for a while, but he's fallen off in that regard the last couple of seasons. I think that's fair to say. And the difference that it makes in terms of the team's ability to get downhill when Mike Conley is the main perimeter guy rather than Dyson Daniels, it's a it's a pretty significant difference there. Absolutely. I think that's a, a very fair point. So with this Timberwolves game, again, we will get into the preview of next week portion in just a moment here, but just to sort of go briefly through how this sets up the rest of the in-season tournament slate. So as of right now, the Kings are 3-0 in Group C, West Group C. The Timberwolves are 2-1, having just dropped that game to the Kings, and the Golden State Warriors are also 2-1, and and the final game in Group C for the Kings will be on Tuesday against this Warriors squad. And the basics of it are pretty simple. If the Kings win this game, then they're the team that makes it out of Group C. Now, the tiebreaker scenarios are where it starts to get a bit more complicated. So if the Kings lose this game and the Timberwolves lose their in-season tournament game, then the Golden State Warriors are the team that makes it through this group because they have the tiebreaker among these teams. So essentially, if the Kings and the Timberwolves lose, then all three teams will be three and one, but the Golden State Warriors will take the tiebreaker and they will get out of the group. Now, if the 
Kings lose and the Timberwolves win, then we get into a really complicated tiebreaker scenario where essentially the Warriors will have the third tiebreaker is what it will come down to at that point. And basically they would take that tiebreaker unless Minnesota puts up a massive number in their remaining in-season tournament game on Tuesday against OKC, where if the Timberwolves put up like 140 and the Warriors win the Kings game by a smaller margin, the tiebreaker the Warriors would have in that case would be total points scored in the first round. I'm doing my best here. I may be wrong with some of these tiebreakers, but that is how it is as far as I understand it. So essentially, if the Warriors beat the Kings by a small margin and score fewer points than the Timberwolves for the team to make it through. But from the Kings' perspective, really what it boils down to is they need to beat the Warriors on Tuesday night to secure their place in the next round of the in-season tournament, which I think is a good way to transition into talking about the Golden State Warriors game on Tuesday. So moving into the preview portion of the podcast. And with the game on Tuesday, I mean, the biggest sort of thing here is just this is really what will determine essentially the outcome of group c in the in-season tournament but it's also a fascinating game just because any king's warriors game is going to be fascinating these days but this is also the return of draymond green after his five game suspension for choking out rudy gobert on the floor and king's fans are quite familiar with um let's say draymond's um Propensity for outbursts, I'll put it, after, you know, he kneeled on Demonis Sabonis' chest in the playoffs last year. You know, not exactly the cleanest play that anyone has seen, and certainly something that will be on Kings fans' minds in this one. But, you know, with the return of Draymond, obviously he makes the Warriors team a lot more dangerous. I think that's a pretty obvious statement to make. But, you know, really the difference is going to be how much can Draymond's return limit the Kings on the offensive end of the floor, because as we've said, you know, if the Kings can sort of dictate the style of things, they'll have a good shot in pretty much any game they play. And if Draymond can disrupt that as he's done in the past, as he did in the playoffs last year, whether through legal or illegal play, you know, this is the kind of thing where every Kings Warriors game is going to be fraught. And especially after, you know, two games already this season, a one point loss, you know, to the Warriors, at Chase Center, this is a big game. And again, you know, that's going to be the case with any Kings-Warriors game, but especially with this one, you know, it'll be interesting to see how this sorts of how this sort of plays out with essentially the outcome of Group C of the in-season tournament on the line. I'm glad you mentioned Draymond. As far as what to expect from him, it's his first game back after missing an extended period of time. So it's very difficult, if not impossible, to have realistic expectations. We don't know just how uh, important a role he's going to play. Theoretically, uh, if, you, if you look at the, we talked earlier about Fox's centrality to the Kings, and everybody, of course, knows of Steph's centrality to the Dubs, but you could say the same thing historically about Dre, and at both ends of the floor, he plays a central role working with Steph and working with the other players on offense and sort of organizing the offense and contributing certain other things there. And defensively, 
you know, he's calling the shots and he's uh, organizing. I mean, so organizing may be a good word to use at both ends of the floor. Um, and, you know, historically, he's been the heart and soul of the team that has um, morphed into a positive and negative role um, in, in ways that you've been describing. What that means in terms of how he's going to perform and how it's going to affect how the dubs perform, it's really anybody's guess at this point. It could be hugely important. It will be hugely important over time. You know, what it's going to mean for a single game, the first game back, stay tuned. So the second game next week for the Kings is against the Los Angeles Clippers. And when we did our preseason preview with Law Murray of The Athletic, if you haven't listened to that episode, definitely go back and check that out. But when we did that preview, we, you know, sort of towards the end of the preview, asked Law what his thoughts were about a potential James Harden trade. And basically his response was, Doubt it'll happen before the season. Doubt it takes until the trade deadline. And sure enough, you know, a couple weeks into the season, news breaks that James Harden is going to the Los Angeles Clippers. And it has been very rocky for the team basically since Harden joined. And, you know, we'll certainly get into the fact that people should be more patient with a team that just made such a dramatic overhaul. But, you know, ultimately the big story around this team right now, as, you know, is as was pretty easy to see coming, right? The big story around the Clippers is that they have struggled as a whole since James Harden came into the fold. And particularly Russell Westbrook has struggled mightily since the Harden situation sort of came to bear. You know, I would, I would agree with that mostly. I would say that obviously they struggled hugely at first and the trend has been significantly positive since then. What is it? Four out of five they've won now. Yeah, no, that's that's correct. They lost um, they lost six in a row with Harden being present, I believe, for four of those games. And then since then, they've won four or five. Yeah. And I would use this as a uh, teaching point of let's not do rushes to judgment. You know, when a when a player of that magnitude or even close to that magnitude comes into a fairly well established setting. It's going to have implications, and they're not necessarily all going to be immediately positive. Don't rush to judgment. So, yeah, they lost four in a row. Okay, that was the stupidest trade in the history of the world, um, <laughs> and uh, they're going to finish last. That didn't age well. So stop making those sort of, uh, sorts of uh, judgments based on a sample of that size. I, I guess you could say the same thing about the five game sample, except that they are, that's now after some period of um, integrating him into the lineup. And you're absolutely right. It does raise the issue of Westbrook. And, you know, we saw last year when um, he was a, a very bad fit with the Lakers and then a very good fit with, with the uh, Clippers. You know, it's all over again now. What is his fit? And, you know, what do they expect from him? What do they want from him? What is he ready to accept? Uh, what, what does he have the skill set to be able to deliver in terms of what they're looking for? Um, there are so many, I'm just listing a few things. There's so, there are so many, uh, variables, uh, involved in this. But if everybody maximizes what they do that results in a maximal fit with, um, you know, all the key players having um, the opportunity to 
produce what they're capable of producing. And don't forget, um, Terrence Mann, um, this is, and Zubach, don't forget Zubach. And, uh, so I would say, you know, the trend is a very, very good one. Yes, there is the question mark of how is the Westbrook question going to be answered? Potentially positively, we don't know. Uh, potentially very negatively, we don't know. Um, but, um, but as I said, the original rush to judgment has not aged well. The Westbrook question is interesting for a whole variety of reasons. But, you know, I think ultimately a lot of the sort of <laughs> clamoring around that situation has been mainly just due to the hardened trade not directly but pretty close to coinciding with the worst five grain stretch of russell westbrook's entire career so from their loss to denver on the 14th through their second to last game so through their game against the pelicans of all teams he put up a 34.7% true shooting percentage, which again, worst five grain stretch of his entire career, right? That includes the incredible struggles with the Lakers. That includes some of his lower moments with the Wizards. Worst five game stretch of the entire career of Russell Westbrook in his 1,104th through 1,108th game. The timing is terrible, you know, optically speaking, but the flip side of that is no matter how different Russell Westbrook is now from when he was at the peak of his powers, him having the worst five-game stretch of his career is not something that anybody should be anticipating to continue. And, you know, sure enough, the next game, right, you know, game against Dallas, which they won going away, he went six for nine from the floor, right? So it's the kind of thing where, sorry, six for nine from the floor along with eight rebounds and seven assists. So it's the kind of thing where, okay, you know, the timing is sort of suspicious in the sense that it's not a good look for Westbrook to struggle as soon as Harden comes on board. But it also doesn't seem to me anyway, like it's necessarily a statement of, oh, James Harden is on the team. All of a sudden, Russell Westbrook's never going to play good basketball again. So I think um, to, to focus some more on cliches, these things take time. There we go. And... I would also add, you know, they have Ty Lu, who's a very yeah. smart and good coach. And if uh, somebody's going to be able to figure it out and make it work, he's a real good candidate for that. Um, so uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens. And, you know, the, I, the most recent set of quotes from Westbrook were encouraging in terms of him saying what it is that he needs to deliver and, and um, what he should, you know, not focus on. Um, the very things that you or anyone else would name. Um, he hasn't really done that um, throughout his career, even at times where one would have thought he should have. So for what that's worth, that's encouraging. So the third game that the Kings are playing next week is against the Denver Nuggets. And the biggest note from that in terms of preview purposes is Jamal Murray will probably be back for that game. So as of this morning, Sham Sharania of The Athletic announced that the Nuggets are now viewing Murray's injury as day-to-day, -day, and he may end up playing in their game on Wednesday. He may end up playing in their game on Friday, but seems at this point that given that he's essentially listed as questionable for their game on Wednesday against the Rockets— 
Odds are good that he will be back in the fold for the game Saturday against the Kings. And I mean, you know, the Nuggets are once again one of the best teams in the Western Conference. You and I could talk all day about Nikola Jokic, but you know, we we probably will, you know, we'll we'll be judicious about that certainly. But with Jamal Murray coming back, this is you know a team that. Michael Malone said recently, you know, they're looking for a shakeup. And sure enough, in their most recent game, Aaron Gordon missed the game with a heel injury. And Justin Holiday entered the starting lineup, which certainly was surprising given that Holiday has been DNPCD'd for, you know, 10 of the 17 games this season for the Nuggets and yet started in this one, former King Justin Holiday. It's. I mean, you know, this Nuggets team is dangerous all the time. You know, anytime Nikola Jokic steps out on the court, they're going to be dangerous. But, you know, we talked earlier about the two-man games of Demonis Sabonis. The two-man game between Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic is, in my mind, you know, for my money, the best two-man game in the league. And that is a situation that, as dangerous as the Nuggets team is all the time, it will be a challenge for the Kings to face them it's a very interesting schedule in that the kings have back-to-back tuesday wednesday after having not played since friday and then another couple days off before the saturday game they could definitely get caught off guard by the return of murray if they aren't all the way locked in and that's a team that you can you can struggle to beat even if they aren't all the way healthy you got the joker you're a threat regardless um you have the joker and the blue arrow then um wow but you know what we have no idea what to expect from him first of all will he play how much will he play how effective will he be what will it do to team fit and chemistry and uh you know in terms of disruption coming back if if in fact he does come back now obviously that's different when you have somebody like the joker that can accommodate virtually anything and the and their pre-existing relationship is such in terms of their um, IQ and their uh, synergy and uh, all, all of those in their history together, all of those things. But it's always going to be an issue, right, for somebody that's just coming back. I don't care who they are. Um, so um, we'll see. We'll see what happens. We don't know if he's even, even going to play. I have seen, and I'm sure you have it as well, um, the questionable tag put on multiple players for weeks on end, um, but we'll see. I mean, the fact that it's questionable for Wednesday does imply that he'd be elevated somewhat from that on Saturday. Yeah, that does lead into, you know, one sort of other thing that I wanted to bring up before we wrap up, which is sort of more of a general thing, which is just health. And, you know, this is something that we discussed at length in the preview pods, how the Kings were remarkably healthy last season in a way that statistically just isn't really repeatable. You don't expect lightning to strike the same place twice. And, you know, already the Kings are decently close to, you know, missing as many games from injury as they were all of last season. And certainly, you know, Keon Ellis missed all of last week with an ankle injury. Alex Len had that high ankle sprain uh, where he's expected to miss another, you know, five, six weeks. Keegan Murray missed Friday's game with a back injury. Seems like he's day to day. So presumably he'll be back in the lineup for tomorrow's game against the Warriors. But I mean, again, this is a Kings team that already has struggled with injury more than they did all of last season. And I mean, 
there are teams that have already missed more games than the Kings missed all of last season. So it's the kind of thing where, you know, again, the Kings, even with the best medical staff in the world, we could presume just by the law of averages that they would be more hurt this year than they were last year. And so far, that certainly seems to be playing out. So um, NBA basketball is one of the reasons that I'm glad I took statistics in college. <laughs> so as coming coming uh, into the season, as I pointed out, having taken statistics, we knew that the chances of, as you say, lightning striking were close to zero. Um, you, you cannot repeat. I mean, even with, and let, let's say uh, that the Kings arguably have the best uh, medical and training staffs in the league and therefore um, affects those numbers. Even with that, it's just not going to happen in in, in consecutive years. Um, And and anyone who's taken statistics will tell you that. You know, and last year, while people sort of gave a wink and a nod to the fact that they had extraordinary uh, injury and health luck, people didn't, a lot of people didn't really look at it that closely. There were several teams that had close to 300 uh, player games missed due to injury and the kings the second the second least number was the knicks around 100 and the kings were in the 60s i mean that's just like it's nearly unprecedented and so that wasn't going to happen you know you mentioned several and and didn't mention box only because everybody knows about that um so and and as you mentioned i believe there are three teams that have already missed as many player games as the Kings missed the entirety of last season. And you look at the Grizzlies. I mean, that that's the, it's like, okay, which, not which player, which two players are going down today that have not previously been injured? And is there a league below the G League that they can call somebody up from? Um, it's, that's remarkable. But so, you know, that's coming into play as it inevitably had to come into play. I mean, that, that shouldn't surprise anybody. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the Grizzlies. They're already at the point where they're signing hardship exemption injury contracts. And, you know, one of the players that they signed to an injury exemption contract was Stockton Kings' Jalen Noel, right? So, you know, it's indirectly affecting the Kings in a sense that, you know, one of the Stockton Kings players that the team was certainly invested in to some degree has been signed away because the Grizzlies were already granted a hardship exemption. I mean, you know, the John Morant suspension is one thing, but Steven Adams injury, you know, out for the year. And, you know, they got that injury exemption because essentially they had five players who were expected to miss significant time during the 10 day contract period of that injury exemption. I mean, Brandon Clark's been overlooked as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, Brandon Clark, you know, just Marcus Smart missing time. I mean, Jake LaRavia, just a whole Luke Kennard as well, just a whole slew of players for the Grizzlies who are who are out of the picture. And, you know, it's one thing to be three and thirteen after being one of the leading teams in the Western Conference last season, right? Like there's only so much of that that you can attribute to John Moran's suspension. A lot of that is just the incredible bad injury luck that they've had outside of that. Well, when looking at how, how whole or not whole a team, uh, the team is, let's count Jaws' suspension as equivalent to an injury in terms of its impact. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, okay, fine. The reason is different, but the, his absence isn't different. Absolutely. One more thing that I just wanted to sort of quickly touch on before we wrap up is all three of these games next week are home games. And the Kings have 
the most road heavy. They're tied with the Mavericks, I believe, for the most road heavy schedule so far. And they're four and one at Golden One Center with the one loss coming to the Golden State Warriors. And they're five and five on the road. And five and five on the road is, you know, pretty solid. I mean, five and five on the road and a significantly winning record at home is essentially what the Nuggets have been since they've been a playoff caliber team. And it's the kind of situation where, you know, nine and six start and six in the Western Conference is pretty solid. But for them to do that by essentially treading water on the road and, you know, being a great home team, I mean, you know, Golden One Center is one of the best arenas in the sport to watch basketball. And it's the kind of thing where, you know, it's not like a sort of built in home court advantage like the Denver Nuggets have of, you know, literally being a mile above sea level that other teams have to struggle to adjust to. But, you know, it's a pretty obvious statement to make, but one worth making that basically every NBA team is much better at home than they are on the road. And so for the Kings to be at the place they are right now with having had such a road heavy schedule, it'll be fascinating to see how this next week plays out because on paper to the teams that they're playing are below 500 as we are recording this on Monday morning. But I don't think anyone, you know, thinks of the Golden State Warriors or the Los Angeles Clippers as bottom feeders, exactly, right? And, you know, the other game, obviously, coming against the Denver Nuggets, right? It's going to be a difficult week on paper, and it'll be fascinating to see just how much, you know, home court advantage plays into it. Because, again, this is a team that, other than Dallas, has been on the road more than anybody else in the league. And just in terms of um, impact of how well you play on the road, Last year, for example, if the Dubs had played 500 ball on the road, they would have won nine or 10 more games than think of where they would have been in the standings. Yeah. I mean, we talked about that with CJ Holmes on our Warriors preview, which you can also all go back and check out if you haven't yet. But it's the kind of situation where even just treading water would have made a dramatic difference for that team. And so far, what we've seen from the Kings is they've essentially been treading water on the road. And you know, if they can be at good, as good at home as they have been so far, you know, granted the sample size is small, but the sample size is small because they've played almost all their games on the road. And with a tough schedule in the week ahead, but all three of them being home games, it'll be very telling to sort of see where the Kings are at when they have a bit less punishing of a travel schedule. So thanks to you, Nick, and thanks to our listeners for um, putting up with the impaired, ver my impaired version. Um, and I uh, am dedicated to, uh, to uh, attempting to commit to um, being significantly more nearly myself next week. Uh, that's my hope. That's my plan. Um, and we'll see, we'll see how it unfolds. So thanks everybody. All right. Well, thank you all so very much for listening and, Thank you for checking us out. If you've enjoyed the show, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review on whatever podcast player you might be using. That is always much appreciated on our end, but particularly appreciated since we are a relatively new show. You can find us on Twitter at Kings Weekly Pod, or you can find me on Twitter at NBA Johnson, and you can find Ray at Ticket Rules. And at Ray LeBeau. Oh. And at Ray LeBeau. And if you've been enjoying the show or if you have any feedback, feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter at Kings Weekly Pod or at NBA Johnson or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.